Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we are looking at the global politics of climate change in advance of the upcoming COP26 conference. Hello, my name is Jennifer Hudson, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Today, we're looking at the global politics of climate change in advance of the upcoming COP26 conference being held in Glasgow on the 31st of October through 12th of November. If you don't know, COP stands for the Conference of the Parties and is the annual UN Climate Change Conference. The conference will be attended by the countries that signed the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, a treaty that came into force in 1994. Now, COP's important because among academics, campaigners, environmentalists, and policymakers, COP26 is seen as a critical event. It's the moment at which countries must set out more ambitious goals for climate action five years on from the Paris Agreement. It also comes on the back of even more severe extreme weather events, evidence of rising CO2 emissions, and continued biodiversity loss. I'm delighted to say that for today's podcast, I'm joined by Lisa Van Halle. Lisa is Professor of Political Science and the Principal Investigator of the ERC-funded Climate Change Loss and Damage Research Project. We're joined by Elisa Cagliari. Dr. Cagliari is a Senior Research Fellow at the Department of Political Science, and Elisa co-leads across the cross-national comparative research on domestic loss and damage in policymaking with a specific focus on developing countries. Angelica Johansson is a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Science and is interested in the production of knowledge and policy related to international loss and damage policy. Lisa, Elisa and Angelica, welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics. Lisa, can I start with you? Can you set the scene for us a little bit? What's at stake at the upcoming COP conference? Yeah, it's a great question, Jennifer. It's been two years since the last COP, which was held in Madrid in 2019. And COP26 was meant to be held last year and was canceled because of the COVID pandemic. Um, So we're a little bit behind on things when kind of tackling climate change at this level. So there's a lot at stake and there's even more urgency this year than there would have been under normal circumstances. I think there are three things really that are going to matter a lot at this COP. Um, one are the discussions about raising ambition. So at the in Paris um, in 2015, um, c- countries agreed to this kind of very bottom-up novel type of uh, kind of international treaty for the first time. And that meant making commitments on the emissions that they were going to make, which is basically referring to kind of reductions in um, carbon and other greenhouse gases that result as a part of kind of societal or economic activities. Countries also pledged to keeping temperature levels um, well below two degrees and aiming for kind of 1.5 degrees. And that was, you know, that's a really tough call. That's a really tough thing to kind of do at this point, considering kind of the trajectories we've been looking at. And part of what was designed into the Paris Agreement was this ratchet mechanism so that companies made pledges for what they were going to do at the national level. And they were going to come back every few years to kind of increase those pledges, increasing ambition. That's what we mean when we're talking about increasing ambition. So that's something that is really going to matter at this particular COP because that those kind of some of those figures are being revisited now. 
I think a second thing that's at stake is support for developing countries. And we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, but particularly kind of support for those countries that are most vulnerable to climate change impacts. And then third is really going to kind of what else is at stake are these discussions about how the Paris Agreement is going to be implemented and kind of some of the technicalities around the rules for implementing the Paris Agreement, um, which is known as the Paris Rulebook. So those are the kind of three big issues. Um, but of course, there's there's lots going on when you go to a COP. That's fantastic, Lisa. Thanks for, for setting that out. Um, Elisa, what, what's, what's important here at COP coming up in your view? I don't want to repeat Lisa that much. Uh, and as you said, there are so many things going on at a COP. I think that especially in terms of the research we are conducting here at the department, we're going to follow closely the negotiations around loss and damage. And especially those that aim at creating like a, a network to support uh, particularly developing countries uh, in terms of technical assistance. And this is something that's going to be discussed uh, in Glasgow. So we're going to follow that pretty closely. Fantastic. And Angelica, from where you're sitting, what are you looking out for at COP? So I'm also been following the loss and damage negotiations, particularly and, and, and echoing what Lisa has said. I think it's going to be a very interesting COP. For me particularly, I'm very interested in, in in following how loss and damage is going to be taken up into the UNFCCC, so the United Nations Framework Convention of Climate Change like structure, if it's going to become a standing agenda item. That means that parties are going to need to discuss this every year. And I'm also interested to see how loss and damage are going to be reported upon in the UNFCCC documentation and in their long-term strategies um, to see how much space it gets to take up in the in the institution. That's fantastic because I want to talk about the project that that you three are working on together and, and Lisa maybe before we speak about kind of your motivation and how you got into it um, you've all referenced loss and damage. What is loss and damage and how does it fit into this bigger kind of challenge around climate change? So, yeah, it's a great question, Jennifer, and it'll be a term that's really not familiar to a lot of people, even some of those that maybe have been following climate policy for a while. Um, when we talk about climate change, loss and damage, what we're referring to are those impacts of climate change that we might not be able to adapt to. So generally, climate policy has kind of dealt with kind of two different streams of work, one referred to as mitigation, which is trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And that was really kind of the first decade of the UN process was kind of almost focused almost exclusively on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Then kind of in the early 2000s, people started to realize and the science became more clear that we wouldn't necessarily be able to mitigate quickly enough and that climate change was going to start to have an impact on um, on societies and on ecosystems. And so we saw the emergence of climate change adaptation as kind of a new sphere of policymaking. And um, again, another decade later, kind of in, you know, around the late 2000s, early 2010s, um, the science began again to become more clear that there are going to be impacts to climate, of climate change that we're not going to be able to adapt to. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about loss and damage. And so thinking a little bit more concretely, what that looks like, what that looks like are kind of an increasing um, intensity and frequency of extreme weather events. So for example, heat waves, hurricanes, flooding, 
um, but also slow onset events. So sea level rise. I'm sure my team will come in and kind of help me out on, on kind of thinking through some of the some of these things in a little bit more detail. So those are the impacts of climate change. And loss and damage also incorporates some of the kind of um, human and community related impacts of those. So for example, um, the topic of climate change migration has largely been dealt with in the realm of loss and damage policy. Or thinking, for example, about how to build climate resilience into kind of like development planning, for example, so that if you have a hurricane in a small Caribbean island, you know, that used to be a kind of once in a hundred year type hurricane and it destroys all your infrastructure. And now that's happening once every 10 years. How, you know, how do you kind of build build that in and invest in a way that's kind of different? So we talk about climate resilience as another part of loss and damage policy making. And then we might also kind of categorize a third a third set of things on non-economic losses. And that relates to things like loss of life or effects on health, um, culture, livelihoods, those types of things. That's fantastic. And I, I think that really does kind of serve well to think about how loss and damage and what you three are researching in this project kind of fits in with a, in a wider uh, set of kind of policy frameworks, um, because most of our listeners probably will be familiar with mitigation and adaptation as kind of a, a common language to talk about addressing climate change. But loss and damage may not be yet on, on people's radar. Um, so just coming back to you very quickly, Lisa, um, you know, tell our listeners wh- why, you know, on a personal level, on an academic level, what motivated you to, to, to research this particular question? Why is it important? Yeah, I think for me, there was kind of two motivations. So one was really kind of looking at the literature and um, and looking at what was happening in the negotiations and seeing that this this kind of new, you know, third pillar, like as some refer to, refer to it as this new third pillar of climate policy wasn't really being kind of looked at by political scientists. And that, and that actually there's a lot of value in bringing kind of some of the theories of political science across the spectrum from international relations to comparative environmental politics to understanding some of the challenges of loss and damage. And um, so so that was really kind of the, the academic motivation. I think on a more personal level, you know, the the kind of these developments in the UN process for kind of dealing with loss and damage. And, you know, and and we can talk a little bit about kind of it being framed in that particular way. We're really resonating on a personal level where I was at a moment of, you know, kind of facing significant loss in my life for the first time. And I was thinking, um, you know, kind of in that, in that very personal way of kind of how to grapple with loss and how to grieve and, you know, what you do with that and, and kind of, you know, reading and literary theory about kind of, um, cultural trauma and generational trauma. And so I was linking linking things happening in my own life with kind of things I was reading in, in literary theory and Freud, you know, kind of thinking about melancholia um, with what I was seeing uh, kind of happening in the UN process. And so it was really kind of this, this triangle of things that, that kind of motivated me to, to begin to explore, explore this and start to ask questions about, you know, how how do we deal with loss in political processes? How do we deal with loss at the international level? How do we deal with loss the national level and, and kind of in policy, um, but also starting to bring in maybe some of those uh, kind of frameworks for dealing with loss that have been looked at, you know, in quite a bit of detail in other areas of political science. So thinking about, for example, um, you know, conflict and genocide and thinking about truth and reconciliation um, committees and, you know, and, and thinking about the loss that developing countries are going to experience and, and how, do we, how do we grapple with that on a policy level, but also on an emotional level. 
Fantastic. Um, I want to come to uh, the three of you and kind of try and understand what maybe the the questions. It's it's, it's a big a big project. It's a five year project um, that you're you know you've got quite a varied kind of approach in it. So, um, Elisa, maybe I'll, I'll come to you here. You've been really looking and focusing on developing countries in particular, and you know we've alluded to the the fact that it's developing or poor countries that might feel the impacts of climate change more profoundly. What, what are you looking at in your research? What's the main question that's that's motivating you? So we're trying to understand how policymakers at the national level are trying to cope with these impacts from climate change, which are particularly severe, and that probably goes beyond um, adaptation. Uh, so what they're already trying to do, uh, although a bit poorly, but not because of them because of their fault, but just because in, in developing countries, um, you know, adaptive capacity is not as developed because of an issue of resources. And so one part of the story, yeah, it's about resources, but on the other side, we also need to consider that, as Lisa mentioned, there are so many impacts which are kind of new to them, and, and we still don't know how to, to deal with them. Like, what are we going to do when we lose territory because of sea level rise? This is an issue that touches upon... Uh, even the sovereignty of a state, um, or what are we going to do when we, we lose our biodiversity, ecosystem services which are supporting our life, uh, like water provision, but also, you know, the pleasure to walk uh, in a boat. So all these kind of things which are also very difficult to quantify and and also very difficult to understand how to, to preserve uh, from loss. And... And it's challenging because uh, loss and damage is something that has been discussed a lot at the international level. Um, so if you go to COPS, yeah, maybe you'll find people that are more familiar with the concept. But when you go to the national level, uh, policymakers are not really, you know, familiar with, with these things. So, yeah, we try to understand how they navigate the concept and how they're trying to, to deal with it across uh, disaster risk management, adaptation policies and sustainable development policies. Fantastic. And Angelica, let me come to you. You've you the work in, in, in the project, you've been really focusing on on science and policy interactions um, in the loss and damage debate. Um, that's really fascinating given some of the challenges we've seen around science um, and policy with COVID. Can you give us an example of, of your observ- observations around science and policy and how they work together or at odds in climate change? Yeah, sure. And I, I might start with like the, the bigger, I think um what most people might be familiar with is the IPCC report. So the International Panel of Climate Change uh, produces a report that summarizes all the science. And that report is, you know, supposed to underpin um, policymaking at international and national level. I haven't specifically studied the IPCC report, but rather uh, I'm studying how the the science and the policy interacts in the loss and damage negotiation. So within the UNFCCC, there is a committee working on loss and damage policy. And and one of their mandates um, is to enhance knowledge. And I think it's quite interesting to see how how science and policy interact there, because while the committee is also referring to the IPCC report as something that they want to you know base their policy on and they often refer to the IPCC report as the best available science it's often quite tricky to see how that science is melted down or or 
or applied in very like localized contexts on very specific issues. And so what the committee has done is that they have constructed these expert groups focusing on the areas that are particularly relevant for the loss and damage negotiation. And that can be uh, expertise on on slow onset events like the melting of glaciers or uh, comprehensive risk management. How do you do when you're facing a, a hurricane or a cyclone? Um, or 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 expertise around displacement. What do you do if you can't live where you were where you were living and you have to move? Um, and it's very interesting to see how these experts work together with the committee to to produce recommendations for the COP. And that's one way that science and expertise can kind of be, you know, taken in into the international like decision making body. But one thing that I also have noticed and seen in my data during the study um, is that there is a lot of processes that that is occurring where the science and the policy is interacting that poses bigger questions of, of how how this is happening in the policy, like the politics of of making expertise and how that expertise is then being used in in policy. And I found, for example, that the committee sets, for example, a frame of how the experts should design their working program and what kind of actions they should, like what kind of knowledge outputs they should produce, what kind of reports they should write, etc. But there are other questions around this as well. Uh, For example, the capacity of the experts working on the committees mostly are doing it uh, in addition to their normal day jobs, and not everyone would have the ability to do that. Um, so, so that's interesting questions. Fantastic. Um, let's hear from our three experts about COP itself. Um, COP has publicly stated there are kind of four key goals that they want to push ahead on um, at the Glasgow conference. Secure global net zero by mid-century and keep to 1.5 degrees um, within reach. Two two degrees is the goal, but closer to 1.5 is as Lisa laid out. Adapt to protect communities and natural habitats, to mobilize finance uh, and to work together, particularly around delivering the Paris rule book that Lisa mentioned and kind of really accelerate action towards uh, towards the goals, Elisa, you you've been a veteran of many COP uh, conferences. Can you t- can you give our listeners a little uh, kind of flavor of what happens at one of these conferences? I have actually started to to participate to COP conferences in 2014, so I like to call myself an aficionada of this kind of event. Um, and and I've started by going um, through a project of youth involvement at COPs. And I have to confess that at the beginning, I was completely overwhelmed by the process. I could not really understand what was going on. But after what I, a while, I got it. Um, but just to say that, you know, these are huge events. Um, we have, on average, 20,000 people uh, coming together um, for, for, for the session. Uh, and most of them are state delegates, uh, so those that will actually, you know, carry out negotiations. Uh, a portion of them are observers, as we are, uh, so representatives from NGOs, but also from the research communities, uh, also from companies. Then there are the observers from UN agency and, and the media. But again, most of you know the participants are, are states, which are called parties um, in the in this kind of process. And and these events are also not very crowded, but also very long in the sense that they last for two weeks. 
And in the first week, you have technical negotiations and they're passed over to the political level during the second week. Um, if they are resolved, they're just passed and approved by the political level. If not, the political level has also to take care of resolving you know, what has been uh, left behind. And the objective of the COP is to come out with some decisions on these negotiate, negotiating points. Um, so this is what happens in the so-called blue zone, so where, where negotiations take place. But I just would like to, to, um, to draw attention to what happens outside. So there's also a green zone where civil society showcase um, what they're doing in terms of climate action. Uh, but this is more of a, an institutional space created within the, you know, the, the COP event. And then there's also something outside of this institutional space. And, and it's organized by social movements. And for example, in Glasgow, we're going to have the People's Summit for Climate Justice. So there's a lot, many, many things going on also in the same city of Glasgow and around. And in between the two weeks of negotiation, civil society movement typically organize uh, a march for the climate. And last year, no, not last year, two years ago in Madrid, it was a huge one. We were like 500,000 people. So this is to say that also COP, um, you know, uh, has the power to, to involve not just delegates, states, parties, or people that actually work every day on the issues, but also uh, the general public. That's really interesting. And, and I think that really helps to kind of give listeners a sense of the more official blue zone work and, and the kind of green zone work that you said is really about um, civil society, academics, um, and, and kind of individuals coming together to, to talk and progress around climate. Um, Lisa, I'm going to come to you. You know, you're, you're political scientists, um, and as political scientists, you're very much interested in the politics of, of climate change. Um, can you can you give us a little background in terms of the the methods, the approach that that your project is taking to observe these negotiations and kind of understand the dynamics? Um, and you, you talk in your project a lot about the uh, the importance of norms, and so it would be interesting to hear a little bit more about how you're trying to go observe these norms around negotiation. Thanks, thanks, Jennifer. Um, I, really, part of this project, what we're trying to do is make both a theoretical and a methodological contribution to our, our understanding of how to study global environmental politics. So, theoretically, the interest in norms is really kind of trying to I think trying to fill a gap in the literature and looking at kind of where and how norms emerge and then, you know, how they start to spread and have an influence, which has been looked at in the literature, but also, um, you know, kind of where they might uh, where they might emerge and and then not kind of not be picked up, or they might emerge and then die. And so, you know, I'm interested particularly in in when we go to COP and and when we go to some of the other UN meetings, um, kind of in between the COPs, is really looking at this idea of what I'm calling embryonic norms. And and loss and damage is a great space for studying this kind of thing because it's a new area of climate policy. And so, you know, what we're trying to understand is kind of why are some ideas, for example, related to climate justice, which we might want to think about as a meta norm, how are they starting to kind of trickle into the governance of loss and damage or not? And what are what are kind of some of the, the power politics underlying that, which has been a little bit kind of neglected in, uh, in climate, uh, in, in kind of research on norms. Lisa, before you go further, can I can I get you ask you to give an example of, of what an embryonic norm might be? Just, just so that you know, people who are listening can kind of understand if they're not familiar with the language of norms or the, the idea of norms. 
Yeah, so I think a really, um, I think a really great example is this idea of kind of um, protections and obligations to um, uh, uh, climate, what we might call or what some people call climate refugees. Right. And so this is kind of not a category that actually exists in law. And in some ways, it's a problematic term. And, and we could have a whole other podcast about that, I think. Um, but that might be one that's a, that's a great example in this particular space. And, and I think the kind of um, the jury's still out on whether that's actually going to kind of become something. And what we're interested in understanding is kind of who are the players that are that are kind of doing the framing activities around that, shaping the concept, trying to embed it within kind of international uh, international law and in different in different sites in particular ways. Um, examples in the wider norm literature might be, for example, the responsibility to protect, right, which kind of emerged, um, you know, kind of 15, 20 years ago and, and is kind of a little bit in flux. That seems to be the kind of consensus in the literature. So, so we're interested in this in studying this whole life cycle of norms. And, and in some ways, that's what we're going to do when we go to COP. The second thing we're really trying to do is think about how to study norms. And, you know, a lot of the literature has really focused on kind of um, text and discourses and interviews. And what we're trying to do is advance the literature on um, political ethnography. And so what we do at these um, COPs is um, something that's been called in the literature collaborative event ethnography, where we can't possibly go and observe everything that needs doing. Even the three of us can't cover everything, but we can cover more than just one of us. And so uh, we kind of carefully go and watch different types of events. So some of us might be watching the negotiations. Some of us might be trying to do interviews with negotiators and others are attending side events to kind of understand how knowledge uh, is being portrayed, for example, in some of those events. And, and then what we do is we kind of come back together and we try and meet every day to kind of have check-ins. Um, uh, and then we kind of use that data uh, going forward in, in really kind Kind of interesting ways and and trying to understand kind of the things that people might not talk about in an interview but that we can observe uh kind of firsthand when we go to the negotiations fantastic thank you um elisa could you could you draw out a little bit of the politics between developed and developing countries we know there are a lot of challenges around you know contestation about that kind of terminology but what are you interested in most about the politics um, when you are looking at the kind of dynamics between developed and developing countries? Well, I think that the the key political struggle between developed and developing countries is about who does what and with which money, basically. Uh, and this very, you know, simple in brackets things uh, plays out in every negotiating uh, table. Um, and, and this is because, you know, that there is a principle in the UNFCCC, so in the Convention on, on Climate Change, which is called of common but differentiated responsibilities. So there is a recognition that um, developed countries have been historically responsible for uh, greenhouse gases emissions, and they need to take the lead on that. But, you know, also this principle has been changing a bit uh, during the years and has been changing also with the Paris Agreement. And now we have the common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities, which means that also developing countries in a position to do so should do their part, you know, in fighting uh, climate change. So all nice uh, and clear when we talk about principles, but when you need to operationalize this, uh, well, here comes the trouble because, for example, China can say, Yes, I, I agree. I'm the largest emitter um, uh, at an annual level. But, you know, 
um, I'm still very vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. I still need to move millions of people away from poverty. So if you want me to act, you need to, to support me in that. This issue about supporting developing countries and providing the climate finance, which was one of the issues that Lisa was touching upon at the beginning of the podcast, is the main thing and, and source of contentious between developed and developing countries. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think we could have a whole other conversation about, about uh, kind of developed and developing country politics um, around climate change, but we'll save that for, for future. Um, Angelica, can I come to you and, and, and get a sense around some of the politics and some of the things that you're interested um, when we think about kind of science and, and policy? Um, I read somewhere briefly yesterday uh, that now 99.9% of, of kind of uh, academics and the science community have, have agreed that, you know, uh, climate change is, is, is the result of kind of man-made or our contribution to kind of accelerating the, the warming of the climate. Um, but yet we still have some kind of uh, places in the globally that, that, that this is a challenge, um, that we're still not talking around this kind of accepted wisdom of our contribution to this. And that therefore we need to be responsible for that contribution and, and really address it. Can you give us a sense of what the, the flavor of politics is like in, in your neck of the woods around science and policy? What you said, like, there is a scientific consensus about what's happening. Um, so now we need to just agree the solution. But I think there is also general terms and then boiling it down to, like, what is the practical solution and the best way uh, to deal with a problem? And this, I think, comes down to questions like capacity. Like, what do we... Like, what do we want to know? What do we not want or have time to know? And how much do we need to know before we actually do anything? And there is a really interesting example of this that you can that I'm going to be observing as well during the COP negotiations um, this year. Uh, again, bring it back to loss and damage, where parties currently are discussing how to report on loss and damage in, for example, their national determined contributions, uh, short, like shortened NDCs, but also in the UNFCCC's long-term strategies, such as the global stock take or their trans transparency framework. And there are a few arguments for why we should include specific, um, why we should look specifically on loss and damage and report specifically on loss and damage in addition to adaptation and, mit and mitigation uh, in these documents. And that would be to it would allow for for the world to trace um, the increase or decrease of loss and damage globally. But then the argument against this would be, for example, a capacity issue. Not everyone will have the capacity to, to report on this, so therefore we, we maybe shouldn't do it, or maybe it's not interesting for all the countries to report on. Um, and the ones who wants to do it can do it voluntarily because there is no rule that... That you, that you shouldn't report on it if no one else is reporting on it. So we can see that some countries are starting to report on it, but if it's not happening on a global level, or if not everyone is required to do so, the consequence could be that it's it's difficult to it's difficult to basically trace what is happening on a, at a global or a regional scale, and we might not be able to to design the, stu the suitable strategies to deal with these problems. Um, and I think this is coming down to like what we want to know and what we don't want, do not want to know um, in some instances. 
Yeah, I mean, I think capacity, as you've pointed out here a couple of times, is really important and the variability of that capacity to, to kind of identify loss and damage and how it fits in with some of the wider frameworks is, is really important. Um, Lisa, before we before we move on to our, our kind of what, what would a successful COP conference look like, um, we've been talking a little bit more um, uh, about kind of states or large international organizations um, and their role um, in COP. But a, a recent study um, by my own project, the Development Engagement Lab, found that less than a quarter of the public in France, Germany, the US and here in the UK um, could accurately identify or understand what net zero means. And I, I just wonder what you think the role of the individual in responding to kind of or, or, or thinking about COP is. But is there a risk that, you know, the scientific community and the, the kind of epistemic community around climate has left the public behind? Are, are we bringing the public with us um, in, in, in a way that's allowing them to engage in this process? Or is there, is there a little bit of a, a space there that's problematic? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Jennifer. And I think I think I think what I how I would respond is to say that I think there's room for all of those processes, right? So we need the technical knowledge and we need to advance that knowledge and we need the kind of political elites to be doing the work and navigating the politics at COP. Um in a way that that you know doesn't necessarily involve, you know, a lot of those things have to you know, people would argue happen behind closed doors to kind of reach resolution, though, of course, we would argue for kind of more transparency and participation and, and voice. Um, and, you know, we have a number of colleagues at UCL, across UCL, who are really interested in kind of the communication of climate change to, to broader publics. And so I think there's certainly more that states could be doing. Um, and, you know, but I think there are real questions around how much individual behavioral change can be relied on. And the literature often talks about a kind of responsabilization and the, re the real risks of that when we kind of start to see states shifting focus onto what individuals can and cannot do and the choices they have to make. You know, we're really in the decisive decade for kind of tackling this problem. And that requires real leadership investments by government and kind of significant action in venues like COP to kind of move that forward. Uh, a final question to, to round us out for this podcast, um, for the whole panel, um, what would a successful COP look like? And, you know, maybe how, how and when will we know um, if meaningful progress has been made? So Angelica, if I can come to you first. I think a COP will be meaningful if they, part if the parties make pledges that is, you know, well below 1.5 degree warming and the way we will see if they are successful if, if they keep those pledges and maybe as well if to when the COP finished I think if all the activists were happy I think that would be an interesting indicator as well on how successful the COP would be. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, the kind of the discourse and the analysis ex post conference that happens, I think you can get a really good sense of how well those who are very closely aligned to, to you know, to the conference and the process, um, what the chatter is amongst amongst civil society and, and, and their kind of uh, judgment. I think you're absolutely right. Elisa, um, what does a successful COP look like to you? Uh, to me, it's a really difficult question because we always put a lot of expectations on single COPs when it's really a long and, and painful process that's been going on for 
more than 26 years now. Um, so, yeah, probably uh, at, if we look at this specific COP, as Angelica said, there are a couple of issues that need to be solved around the technicalities of the Paris Agreement, but there are more large-scale political things, like, again, the issue of really supporting vulnerable countries uh, in, in coping with the impacts of climate change. So, to me, personally, uh, if we could see really uh, strong pledges, not pledges, but also delivery, <laughs> Of, of climate finance for the most vulnerable, that would be a, a huge success. And this is basically what vulnerable countries have been asking during the whole year in the run-up to COP. Okay. And Lisa, final word to you. What does a successful COP look like to your eyes? Yeah, so I think in terms of a COP outcome, uh, I'm going to focus on loss and damage because I think my my wonderful team here has covered some of the really important issues. I think kind of um, advancing what's been what's being referred to, what um, is being called the, the Santiago Network uh, for loss and damage, which is really about kind of delivering assistance on loss and damage for developing countries, not just trying to enhance knowledge or ensure kind of synergies. It's really about addressing loss and damage. So I think on one thing, I think a successful COP for us, for our team, is, is kind of coming out with some really good and exciting data. This is going to be the third COP we've been together as a team, and I think it's going to be our best ever. It's really exciting. We really all kind of understand all the jargon. We speak UNFCCC, as you might say now. And so, um, you know, we have a number of people, you know, negotiators, civil society activists, people from developing countries, developed countries who we have good relationships with. So I think if we kind of come out feeling good about the research, that'll be a successful COP for us. I think your question about when we'll know whether it's a successful COP on a bigger level is a really good one. And I've thought of kind of three timelines where I think we can think about this. I think the first is at the end of the first week of COP. Then we'll know kind of what what issues continue to remain unresolved um, among the kind of you know the, the more technical negotiations. I think the second deadline will be the kind of Saturday at the end of COP. Um, the last COP we attended was kind of went latest into the night on Saturday night, and you know and there were a lot of issues that remained unresolved across the kind of the kind of more sticky sticky issues that are being dealt with, including loss and damage. And then I think the third timeline to know whether this COP was successful will be 2030, right? That's what we're kind of talking about when we talk about net zero. And um, so, you know, really the proof will be in the pudding. You know, we we focus very much on these kind of um, mega events. COP is this kind of critical juncture in global environmental politics. And one thing we're really trying to do, doing in this project is, is focusing on what um, the political scientist Sakina Jinnah talks about as post-treaty politics. What happens when everyone goes home? You know, what happens after that? And, and, and that's something I think um, we'll really be able to tell whether this was successful or not. Thank you, um, Lisa Van Halle, Elisa Cagliari, and Angelica Hansen for, for really joining us today and your insights around this process. Um, I wish you much success as a research group. Um, it's going to be important for, for the community that you serve um, and a successful COP for, for humanity. You can find out more about the Politics of Climate Change Loss and Damage Project by visiting their website. Please do also check out the Department of Political Sciences, Climate and Environment Experts on our departmental website and those across SHS and UCL. We'll provide links to all of these in this episode's show notes. Next week, we're talking to two of the Department of Political Sciences PhD candidates, Lottie Hargrave and Marcus Kohlberg, whose research focuses on candidates, campaigns, parties, and elections. 
Here, we'll delve into the role of gender in elite and voter political behavior and on recent electoral successes of populist radical right parties. As ever, make sure you don't miss out on future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe, and you can do so on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Jennifer Hudson. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.